Hey everyone, welcome to Revival. I'm Morgan Smith, and today I think it's appropriate to delay our regularly scheduled interviews and reflect on this moment that we're currently inhabiting. And there's been a lot that's been rummaging around in my head. Um, but what I, what I can't stop thinking about is uh, a final speech. Martin Luther King Jr.'s final speech delivered the day before he was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, and it was uh, 1968. And I'm only going to play a clip near the end. It's, it's a pretty lengthy speech. But this clip begins with him explaining the parable of the Good Samaritan, where a man was robbed and attacked on the road to Jericho from Jerusalem and was first seen by a priest and a Levite before the Samaritan, a man of another race, stopped. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles, or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you're about 2,200 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody path. You know it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, love them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the question before you tonight. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to all of the hours that I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? The question is not if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. Let us rise up tonight with a greater readiness. Let us stand with a greater determination 
and let us move on. In these powerful days, these days of challenge, to make America what it ought to be, we have an opportunity to make America a better nation. And I want to thank God once more for allowing me to be here with you. You know, several years ago I was in New York City autographing the first book that I had written. And while sitting there autographing books, a diminished black woman came up. The only question I heard from her was, are you Martin Luther King? And I was looking down writing and I said, yes. And the next minute I felt something beating on my chest. Before I knew it, I had been stabbed by this diminished woman. I was rushed to Harlem Hospital. It was a dark Saturday afternoon. That blade had gone through and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. And once that punctured, you drowned in your own blood. That's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, they allowed me, after the operation, after my chest had been opened and the blade had been taken out, to move around in the wheelchair in the hospital. They allowed me to read some of the mail that came in, and from all over the states and the world, kind letters came in. I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. I had received one from the President and the Vice President. I've forgotten what those telegrams said. I received a visit and a letter from the Governor of New York, but I've forgotten what that letter said. But there was another letter that came from a little girl, a young girl, who was a student at the White Plains High School. And I looked at that letter, and I'll never forget it. Said, Senator, dear Dr. King, I am a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. She said, while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering, and I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. And I want to say tonight, I want to say tonight that I too am happy that I didn't sneeze because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960 when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counter. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream and taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers 
in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride to freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962. The Negroes in Albany, Georgia, decided to straighten their backs up. And whenever men and women straighten their backs up, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had seen... I wouldn't have been here in 1963. The black people of Birmingham, Alabama, aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had. If I had sneezed, wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama, to see the great movement there if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. And they were telling me. Now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said, over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked. And to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check out everything carefully. And we'd had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis. And some began to say the threat. I talk about the threat that were out. Uh, what would happen to me from some of our six white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming.
the inadequacy that I'm feeling in this moment is multifaceted. One part that keeps resurfacing is that everything that needs to be said has already been said. It's been said. <laughs> it's been said in the 1800s, the 1900s, the 2000s, every year. It's been written in books, delivered in speeches, posted on YouTube, tweeted, shared. And yet here we return once again. So what what more can I add? You know, what more can I say that hasn't already been said? And in one way, I see this as an invitation. And it's an invitation that's that's already been offered by so many in this moment and in moments past to do the hard work of engaging with what already is here, seeing clearly what is happening, understanding, listening, reading, feeling uncomfortable, awakening to the reality that surrounds us, letting new voices lead the conversation, developing a nuanced sense of the problems and systems at play. The good news is, in this modern era, if you don't like to read, you can listen to a book or watch a series of YouTube videos, or maybe you do like to read, but not books, and it's long-form investigative pieces. In all ways, it's an invitation to engage with the hard stuff, move beyond the surface level reporting of the news and dig in deep. Brene Brown, one of my favorites, has said before that that people are hard to hate up close. Move in. There is so much that exists in this world that can deepen our understanding and it doesn't rely on conversations or intimate settings with our friends of color. It's on each of us to respond to that invitation, to accept it, and to begin to do the work. Another part of this feeling of inadequacy is uh, what role what role can I play? And that's a question I hear behind so many of my friends, even those who protest, right? Where do I fit in? What can I do? Mostly, I think it's this feeling of powerlessness. That the problems are so huge and systemic that they feel like they exist on a whole other plane, that they are out of reach, that they are beyond our power to solve. And what is tempting to me about this feeling of powerlessness is to wait for another Martin Luther King Jr., to wait for our salvation. I genuinely don't think we'll get another MLK in this moment, no matter where she is. You know, And, and mostly I think it's because we don't need her. Everything we need to summit the mountain, to join him at the mountaintop and reach that promised land, is already here, before us, with us. I listen a lot to, to Krista Tippett, who runs On Being, which is a public life initiative and a, and a radio show. And she often talks about living the questions. That there are some questions that are so big or so meaningful that to answer them in a practical sense demeans the purpose of the question. 
Instead, they are invitations to shape something, to answer partially, to try our best in each moment to figure out what may be true. One of those is, who will we be to each other? This sits at the core of this current moment to me. Who will we be to each other? This is a question that transcends business, workplace, hometown, politics, race, anything, really. It cuts through the noise, and it's unsettling to me because it's so clear that we haven't been living this question. Who will we be to each other? We know maybe a partial answer to that. We know the virtues and the ethics that we want to express. But we have to live it each and every day. We can find ourselves in these big systemic problems by asking, who will I be to others? Another one is is posed by the Episcopalians in their racial reconciliation work. What things have we done and left undone? How can we publicly acknowledge things done and left undone? It's so crucial to me to to recognize this and to, to live this question and let voices be honored in their lived experience. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who oversaw the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in post-apartheid South Africa, says, he wrote once, that, that true enduring peace between countries, within a country, within a community, within a family, requires real reconciliation, truth-telling, hard confrontations, an opportunity for forgiveness, and an unburdening from the pain and the suffering experienced. There, There are many other questions, even more practical ones. How are our institutions and systems broken? And what should be done to fix them? How can we reorient our work in business and in life to support the causes we hold so dear? In what ways can we support each other in this work? And in what ways have we failed that? How might we change the echo chambers that we construct out of a desire for comfort? Understandably so. And, And welcome new voices that sound different than the ones that we're used to. The Reverend Lucas Johnson says that there is an aspirational America and an experienced America. And I think what Dr. King was saying in that clip earlier spoke to this truth too. And the work of the freedom fighters in the 1960s and the work of activists in every generation has been to narrow that gap between our aspirations and the lived experience of so many people. We've always had this opportunity to shape our future. It's part of the reason this podcast exists, um, to recognize that people everywhere are taking this moment in particular to think critically about what's next and to offer a first step or a second step forward. But between this global pandemic and this hopeful final unearthing of this uh, racism pandemic, we might have an opportunity to shape a lot of it 
all at once. And I really hope, (laughs) I really hope that we can get out of our own way in this work and listen deeply and engage meaningfully with each other. Thanks for listening. See you next week.